Our scripture reading is from 2 Thessalonians, starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the very word of God. Well, um, let's see. I think a few folks are um, have just had a birthday or about to have a birthday. I don't want to miss anybody, but Tabitha, happy birthday. Thank you. Yesterday was your birthday? Oh, okay. And um, tomorrow, I believe, is our brother Jod's birthday. And I know this one because it's the same day as my oldest son's birthday. Any other March birthdays? You've already, or, I mean, you've already had a birthday in March. Evelyn, that's right. Evelyn Garza. Kevin? All right. Coming up. It's great. Um, well, tomorrow is my son's, my oldest son's birthday. Um, and it's a big one. He's going to be 20. No more teenager. No more teenager. Um, it's pretty normal for him, or for us, for that matter, to be asked, what's he going to do? Right, like t- he's in college. Twenty. You guys remember turning twenty? It's like the 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 horizons begin to open up for you. Like what's coming next in your life? Uh, it's a big question. It's a big question. Um, and it's not just a matter of kind of your your job, your career. Like all, all of us do things. <laughs> We're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to take up um, tasks, responsibilities, duties. For many, it's your job, of course, but it's not just that. There's all kinds of other tasks and callings that we have in our lives. And, and behind all of that, because it's such a significant part of, of who we are, the things that we do... Um, there's a desire to find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction in the numerous callings and career tasks that we have in our lives. The world is always trying to help one another find meaning and purpose. So much of this uh, has to do with whether or not we, we enjoy our callings, whether or not we like our work. I want to ask a different question as we get started this morning, maybe one that we don't think about enough. Do you think God enjoys his work? Does God find purpose and meaning in the things he does? And if so, does that matter? Does it matter for us? 
what we think about the things God does, does that have any impact upon the things that we do? Last week, we were in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And these verses have to do with concerns about the second coming of Christ and the arrival of the promised day of the Lord, predicted all the way back in the Old Testament. The focus of much of that passage is on the terrifying fate that awaits those who do not believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus and are led astray by the wicked deception of rebellion against the Lord. The passage before us today is a concluding contrast to what we saw in the first 12 verses. The word but in verse 13, leading us to, but we ought always give thanks to God for you, is a contrast. Those who do not believe the gospel, this is kind of the fate that awaits them. But you, you who do believe the gospel, it's a different set of things in mind here. Um, The 19th century Scottish theologian James Denny noted that verses 13 and 14, in these two verses we're given a system of theology in miniature, a, a scope of all of redemptive history, the entirety of what we might say what God has done from the beginning to the end, God's career, if you could say, God's calling, God's task, what God has accomplished, what he has achieved, what he has done. And what we see is that this story of redemption, the gospel, is a revelation of God's great love for his people, a love which motivates Christians to live out their respective callings. So the entire scope of all that God has done can be rightly summarized as love, Incredible love, such an incredible love that it motivates all believers in their respective callings. Again, not just your job, but all the things that we do in our lives. So I want us to think about this together. How does the story of redemption shape and form your day tomorrow? Whether you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or you're turning 20 tomorrow, how does the redemptive love of God in Christ give purpose and meaning to everything that we do? So I want us to, sit, I want us to think about this first by considering the, privilege, the Christian privilege, the Christian privilege, second, the, the Christian tradition. And third, the Christian blessing, the Christian privilege, the Christian tradition, and the Christian blessing. So first, if if we're going to rehearse the story of redemption, the story of our salvation, we should recognize that this story is, it's a love story. Dare I say, a romance From beginning to end, it is a story of the romantic love of God. I mean, God's love for his people. A love like no other. I know that talking like that 
for some of you, is probably the least interesting, maybe extremely uncomfortable thing. You're, you're just messed up by <laughs> romance movies. And you hear that word, and you can't even, like, you want to run far away. But stay with me. I want you to see how critical it is for us to think of the story of redemption as a love story. God loves his people. He loves them more than you can imagine. And if you are one of God's chosen ones, then make it personal this morning. It's okay. You can do it. God loves you. He loves you, brothers and sisters, more than you can possibly know. There's two words that occur back to back here in verse 13, reminding us of this great love. Paul says here, as he did back in the first chapter, verse 3 of chapter 1, that he ought, he ought to give thanks to God for these believers in Thessalonica. Let me just, as if I were Paul right now, I'd be saying this. When I look at you, when I look at you, brothers and sisters, here's what I, it, I ought to give thanks to God for you. Now, why does he say that? Here's why. He says, because they are brothers beloved. The two words occur right next to each other and show us something again of the infinite love of God. Now, you know, of course, you should know that the word brothers does not exclude our sisters here, right? Uh, most modern English, English versions make that plain. The ESV usually does so in a footnote. And the letters to the Thessalonians use this expression, brothers, brothers and sisters, loved, beloved, a total of 28 times in just these short eight chapters, First and Second Thessalonians. Why? And the reason is because Paul, as a pastor planting a church, wants to say to the congregation, do you, do you know how deeply loved by God you are. Well, you don't. You don't. So we got to just stay here for a minute and let it try to sink in. This is a term of endearment, but it's also a term of identity. What makes us Christians, brothers and sisters together, is the fact that we are beloved by the Lord. This description signifies some act of love by God in the past that characterizes us still in the present. God, at some point back here, loved you, and you are still loved by God. It is a term of endearment, but is it a term of identity? This is who you are. You you are loved, loved by God. We could look one another... Square in the eyes and say, you are loved, deeply loved, dearly loved, loved by God. That's an incredible privilege. What is this act of love by God in the past that characterizes us in the present? Paul tells us it's God's election. God chose you. Now, the Bible often speaks of sovereign election. I'm sure you know that. But it does so with different terms. In Romans 8, 29, we read about the foreknowledge of God. It's a term that does not mean that God merely knows something before it happens. It is more relational than that. It means to choose 
beforehand. Not just to know something, but to select something. To choose something ahead of time. God chooses his people long before they could ever even think about choosing God themselves. God freely loves and chooses his own. God's selection of you to love you, brother and sister, is not dependent in any way upon you first loving God. Get that, rehearse it, remind yourself often. This is what the Bible clearly says. We love God because he loved us first. But the word that occurs here in verse 13 is also not the standard Greek word for choosing something. This verb occurs only two other times in the New Testament, and it's also a highly relational word. It emphasizes personal selection, what one chooses for oneself. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 26, 18, where God chooses Israel to be his treasured possession. This is no cold, impersonal choice of one over another. This this is the kind of choice that is being expressed, for example, in marriage vows. When a bride and groom say to one another, I take you. God's love, then, get this, is not his willingness to just tolerate you, put up with you. God's love is his delight in having you and taking you for himself. That's the kind of love God has for you, brother, and for you, sister. There's more in verse 13. This is, how could there be more? There's more. God loved us, so God chose us. But notice the objective compliment for you grammarians out there. He chose us as the first fruits to be saved. Now, what does it mean that God has chosen us, even that he has chosen us for himself? Paul's saying there's, there's more. God chose us. Yeah, he chose us for himself like a, like a, like a bride. A treasured possession. And he chose us for himself as the first fruits to be saved. What does that mean? What does it do? In the Old Testament, the first fruits of a crop were to be sacrificed or given up as an offering to God. But the purpose of sacrificing your first fruits was not simply some act of giving the deity his portion. God made it clear he didn't need any of those sacrifices. The point of the sacrifice of the first fruits was to signify that the entire harvest was dedicated to God. It all belonged to him, and it was all to be used for his purpose, and it was all to be enjoyed as he intended it to be enjoyed. So when Paul says to the Thessalonians, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He does not mean merely that they were in some way the first Christians, maybe in 
that particular city or region or even in their own generation, however much those things may have been true. What Paul says here is similar to what James says in James 1.18. Here's what it says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, get this, every Christian, every Christian has been chosen by God, even chosen for himself to receive and experience salvation in the present age. In other words, salvation here should be seen in its full new creation sense. The experience of being chosen by God, of being loved by God, is the experience of something ahead of time before the full harvest. Okay, so think of it this way. I I was, (laughs) this took me a while to kind of get this into my mind, and so it takes a little while to try to explain this. So try try to follow me if you can. God could have chosen to save you, but only actually done it at the consummation. This is all theoretical. The Bible never says anything like this. But the point of first fruits, saying God could have told the story of redemption. He could have done it in a different way. He could have just brought Jesus back, fixed everything up, and then chose you and saved you and brought you into his new world. He could have done something like that. But the point here is not to lead us into some speculation about that possibility, but simply to let us think and celebrate what indeed God has done in the story of redemption. He has made us a kind of first fruits. In other words, we now, right now, get to enjoy the reality of the age to come. Are you getting this? If you are in Christ, Paul says, you are new creation. The new creation has not yet fully come. That's obvious. And yet, right here in front of me, I'm looking at first fruits. And oh, how he loves his first fruits. He chose you. He chose you to be a taste of the glory yet to come. You say, me? Get your eyes off you and get your eyes on Christ and his infinite love. That's a foretaste of all that's coming, brothers and sisters. And you are a part of that new creation now because of the love of God. Now, in light of all that, if that's true, and it, it's, <laughs> it's so amazingly true that I, I, I know what's probably happening. It's, 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 so, it's almost unimaginable that we can't even grasp it. I mean, we live in a broken world. You're going into work tomorrow and you got troubles. You got tasks to do tomorrow and there's going to be obstacles in the way. We're remodeling our house right now. My dad's helping me do a few things extra. And we have a little saying uh, when my dad and I work, it's, there's always something. 
<laughs> You're working on this, seem to be going well, and then, oh, there's always something, right? We're going to take this wall down, and it's a load-bearing wall, and now we've got to put a header in. There's always something. And that's what you feel. You feel the frustration of this daily broken life. And yet, here's the thing. God is saying to you, wait, I've already chosen you. I've already set my love upon you. You are now experiencing, because of the love of God in Christ, the glory to come. That's who you are. It's your identity because God chose. So if that's true, unimaginably true, here's the thing. Why would you throw it away? Why would you give it all up? Verse 15, the apostle gives an exhortation, but it's an exhortation that has to be understood in light of what we've just seen in verses 13 to 14. So then, brothers, in light of all that you've been given because of the incomparable love of God, stand firm. Stand firm. Now, what does that mean? Many people might hear an exhortation like that as, be a good boy, be a good Christian, uh, I read the story this week. The current president of Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater, Mark Yarbrough, tells of a time when he was a young preacher. He was about to get up and preach uh, at the Billy Graham Training Center. And just as he was getting ready to get up, the back door opened and Billy Graham himself walked in, took a seat, back row. The late seminary professor Howard Hendricks leaned over to Mark and said, Don't screw it up. Is that how you hear the exhortation? Stand firm means you've been given this great inheritance, and now all that's left for you to do is don't mess it up. Is that how you hear it? I hope not. Oh, I hope not. It is a great inheritance, an incredible gift of grace, but stand firm is a word of encouragement, not shame. There's no pessimism here, no cold conservatism that leaves us feeling like we as Christians just have to maintain our grip even as our hands are getting weak and weary. In Galatians 5.1, we find the same word, stand firm. And here's what the verse says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's a great verse. Do you know it, Christian? The reason you are to stand firm is not so you can barely make it and finally be free from the troubles that surround us. We are to stand firm because you've already made it. You've been set free in Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is about freedom, liberation. It's about new creation. The world is looking for progress, but Christians Know what progress truly is. That's why the command to stand firm is further defined by the exhortation that follows. See if this sounds like progress to you. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. Sounds like the opposite. But the word tradition will cause many people to think that this is the backward-looking impulse of Christianity, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Christ set us free for freedom. We're not looking back. We're progress. We're, we're moving forward, but we're moving forward in the tradition. 
When Paul uses the word tradition, this is one of those words that is just the, the understanding of the Greek concept of tradition, or what we're, the word, Greek word here, and our English translation tradition, there's, there's a breakdown for most of us in what we think when we hear the word. Paul does not mean things we believe and do just because we've always believed and done them. It's not mindlessness. The word does mean something that's been handed down. That's why it's usually translated tradition. But the point of Christian tradition, catch this, is that it originates with Christ. It's a Christian tradition. In fact, both Jesus and Paul warn of the dangers of an empty traditionalism that finds its origins in someone other than Jesus. So this tradition, the Christian tradition, is not about the deadness of traditionalism, but the promise of new creation and the enjoyment of the vitality to be found in communion with the risen Christ. Let me say that again. The Christian tradition is not about the deadness of traditionalism, but the promise of new creation and the enjoyment of the vitality that is to be found in communion with the risen Christ. Don't you see? If the tradition we believe, if what has been handed down to us is the news that our Lord, our God, was crucified buried, raised again on the third day, then this is a living tradition. This is a a faith that is both old and new all at the same time. That's amazing. The more you look back to Christ, the more empowered you are to move forward into Christ and into the experience of, of the reality of a new creation that you are privileged as first fruits of new creation to enjoy now. The older you are in Christ, the newer you become. That's the promise of the gospel. The older you are in Christ, the newer you actually become. That's the way new creation works. How old is God? He's the ancient of days. And yet, for the one who is self-existent, who is timeless, who is ageless, in a very real sense, he's younger and more vital and full of life than anyone you've ever met. So the problem that we have here is that to hold to the traditions, as Paul says, often means that you and I have to do What sounds like the opposite of what Paul says. Paul says to the Thessalonians, hold to the the traditions that you were taught. But for you and I to do that, it often requires us to reject some of the traditions that we were taught. As an apostle of the Lord, Paul can tell these believers, hold to what they were taught. Because he knows what he says. He was their teacher both by spoken word and by letter, he was giving them the instruction, the tradition that he had been given by Christ himself. But at the beginning of the chapter, he warned them about being shaken by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. 
something that was a deviation from the Christian tradition. He says, reject that. Reject that. False teaching and false traditions are a constant threat, and we must learn to judge all things by the, by the Christian tradition that is set for us in the Scriptures. We are always in need of the reform that comes when we go back to the Scriptures and align ourselves with the authoritative Word of God, faithfully proclaimed, rightly understood. And when the Word of God is rightly understood, We should find ourselves in company with so many other Christians who have gone before us. This is a rich tradition indeed. We should press into it more and more. And in so doing, you just might discover fresh insights into this world that was quite well known by many of our ancestors in previous generations. By the way, this is why we should be learning from all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In every generation, but in also every place, in every nation, in every race, in every tongue. We've got brothers and sisters that we can learn from because they have experienced the richness of new, they're they're first fruits of new creation too. We should be learning. Now, Paul brings this section to a close with a benediction in verses 16 and 17. And here's the thing. If you can see the enormous privilege it is to be a Christian, loved by God, chosen by God for himself, right now, it's almost like God says, I'm going to, God says, <laughs> I got to go back. God says, I'm going to make all things new. And then he looks at you and says, I'll just go ahead and do it now in you. That's what we mean. So God has made us lovers. We, we are lovers. Uh, we've been loved by God. This is an enormous privilege. We, we see it through the Christian tradition. I'm not making this up. Look at your Bible. See if I'm preaching the word of God. That's the tradition. If those things are true, if it's an enormous privilege to be a Christian, if the Bible is saying all that I'm saying to you today, then the future ahead of us is bright. We live our days tomorrow at work, at home, wherever you find yourself, you live your day, listen, Christian, under the blessing of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You live out your career, your callings, your tasks, your duties, blessed by God. How could it be otherwise? So this is a benediction, and we end our services with a benediction what is a benediction? It's maybe good for us just to, let me, let me get this in and we'll be done. What is a benediction? Because we haven't done this in a while. We're going to end in a few minutes with a benediction. What we ask you to do, yes, this is tradition. You don't have to do this, but many of our forefathers in the faith, foremothers in the faith did this. When you hear a benediction prayed over you, um, you should hold your hands out like this. I'm not going to ask you to do it now while we're preaching this, but at the end. And the reason we do that is because we're, of our understanding of what a benediction is. It's actually a little weird. We don't usually talk like this. So try to understand. Let me, first, let me just read it. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
In one sense, a benediction is a prayer. Does it sound like a prayer? Paul is interceding for the believers in Thessalonica. He's asking God to do something on their behalf. It's it's a prayer. But does it sound a little weird? Is it it's not kind of it's not usually the kind of way we pray. Have you noticed that? Why? Because notice what's unique about it. It's addressed only indirectly to God. It's it's addressed directly to the ones for whom the speaker is praying. Are you with me? That's weird. The Greek syntax, often found in a benediction, is a verbal mood that expresses an action that is possible. So a benediction is a request for God to do something for someone. But get this, even though this has not yet technically been done, there is no uncertainty that is being implied here. The the reason that it's in the form, in a Greek form that expresses uh, possibility is not because there's uncertainty about what God will do. It's simply a way to reflect the petitioner's humility before God because the petitioner's not the one who's going to do it. The request, even though it's being spoken by the petitioner to the petition, are you with me? This is, <laughs> is something that only God can do. And so it's in the, in this mood in Greek, in order to express the humility. God has to do this. Okay, so what does that mean? It means a benediction is a prayer, yes, but it is also a blessing. It is meant to encourage the hearer as they hear the certainty. Do you get The certainty of what God is going to do. Hasn't done it yet but he's going to do it. So in this particular benediction, we are reminded of what God the Father and the Son together have already done. They've loved us. We were talk- we've talked about that. They- I feel like I should go back. I can't. Um, they've given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. These are just some of the treasures of our tradition that are brought back out for us to look at again. The infinite matchless love of God in Christ, the certain hope that comes by his lavish grace. Listen, if you are weak and weary today, if you are beaten up by sin and Satan, this is the encouragement you need before you start your week. Remember, you are dearly loved by God. You have been chosen and called into the enjoyment of new creation all by the unconditional grace of God in Christ. And if that's true, then here's what you can expect. Here's what God's going to do. Here's what God's going to do. God intends not only to bring you this comfort and hope of the gospel, but look what it says, and also to thereby establish you in every good work and word. There's your calling. There's your calling. The power of the gospel lies not only as a comfort in our weakness, but also a confidence in our endeavors. Back in chapter 1, the apostle prayed that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. This is the freedom of the Christian tradition. We are dearly loved by God. We don't need to live our lives trying not 
to displease him. We are instead set free to live for his pleasure. And there is a world of difference between those two perspectives. You live in your life trying not to displease God, or are you living your life for the pleasure of God? Your Christian faith and your daily calling are meant to be fully integrated because you, dear brother and sister, are a new creation. The work that God has given you to do tomorrow is not a waste of time. It's not a necessary evil to pay the bills until you can find something else more satisfying. God may call you to some other work in the future, but you do not need to wait until then to expect that God just might be achieving eternal purposes in what you do tomorrow and in what you say tomorrow. And that's because he loves you too much to do otherwise. After all, remember, you are among the first fruits of God's creation. And God takes pleasure in his work. Let's pray together.